Good evening. The family of Julian Assange on the appeal on their appeal of the UK, UK government's rejection of Assange's demand to avoid extradition to the United States. The trial of Brittany Griner begins in Moscow. A deal in Ecuador and the United States Navy admits to poisoning its own. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. The father of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange said everyone must be made aware of what's being done to his son while on an open-top bus protest tour of London on Friday. Lawyers for Assange also lodged an appeal against his extradition to the United States on the final day of a two-week deadline. His dad, John Shipton, said the circumstances, of course, are who would not burn with indignation of what's being done to Julian Assange. It's Julian's birthday, you know, and uh, it's a time that uh, we can bring uh, notice to people of the circumstances of Julian's persecution. There are great structural changes happening in our society. We don't see them on a nice sunny day like this. Everything looks fine, free and easy. This is the time to visit London. But behind this facade is a darkness. The closing down of of open dissent and debate in a country that's always said to pride itself on free speech, the United States, all have to do with Julian. Julian must be free. And that's Julian's dad, John Shipton. Last month, the United Kingdom Home Secretary Priti Patel approved the extradition of Assange to the United States to face trial over the publication of classified documents relating to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And the cannabis possession trial of WNBA star Brittany Griner began in Moscow on Friday. She could get 10 years in prison. The 31-year-old Phoenix Mercury player who was in Russia to play during the WNBA's offseason was arrested February 17th at a Moscow airport a week before Russia invaded Ukraine. She was charged with transporting a significant amount, that's in quotes, or 0.702 grams, that's less than a gram of cannabis oil. The Deputy United States Consul Elizabeth Hood addressed reporters outside the court, as did Griner's Russian lawyer Alexander Boykov, although Alexander Boykov, a Russian lawyer, had very little to say. The Russian Federation has wrongfully detained Ms. Greiner. Wrongful detention uh, is unacceptable wherever it occurs, and it endangers the safety of everyone traveling, living, working, studying abroad. I can assure you that the United States government, at the very highest levels, is working very hard uh, to bring Ms. Greiner, as well as all wrongfully detained U.S. citizens, safely home. Uh, I would not, I, I wouldn't want to talk on the specifics on the case and on the charges and to comment on our position on it because it's too early for it. So I, I could only uh, approve that we, we had two witnesses that are with the customs and we expect the next hearing on 7th of July. That's it. Thank you. 
Griner's wife, Sherelle, says the six foot nine star has to travel over five hours round trip when she goes to court in a very, very, very tiny cage with her knees bent feet to the ground because it's not big enough for her to fit in. Griner's supporters in the United States have called on President Joe Biden to work out a deal with Russia, one similar to a prison swap that took place in April when Russia exchanged a former Marine for a Russian pilot serving a 20 year prison sentence in Connecticut for drug trafficking. The trial was scheduled to resume on July 7th. And last week, the members of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, met in Madrid to discuss more military aid for Russia, as well as ramping up their military for new rounds of competition with the globe-spanning nation that invaded Ukraine in February, Russia, over fears of NATO expansion. The NATO leaders claim the war has sparked new unity among the alliance members. NATO was formed after World War II and was the premier alliance facing the then Soviet Union. In Madrid, there was a tight police clampdown preventing protests, but there was a march of opponents to NATO's plans the weekend before. A former military officer with the U.S. Army and peace activist is Anne Wright. She was in Madrid and says NATO is an even bigger aggressor than Russia. To the no to NATO coalition peace summits and march that we had in Madrid a little bit before the arrival of the leaders of all of the 30 NATO countries and the other associated countries that were invited to this. The security in Madrid was really, really tight. And in fact, they had the police of Madrid and military of Spain had said that anyone that does any protests during that time that the leaders were there will be immediately thrown into jail. So the decision was of the Spanish organizers to have the peace summit in March on the weekend before the leaders got there. We did have quite a bit of publicity in the Madrid papers about the numbers of people out on the streets, about 15,000. The two summits that we had, which had some excellent speakers from all over Europe about the aggressive behavior of NATO toward not only Russia, but other countries. And I live out here in Hawaii, and the NATO presence in the Pacific, NATO is North Atlantic Treaty Organization, yet uh, NATO is expanding into the Pacific with the rim of the Pacific Naval Exercises war games that have already started here with 26 countries. Twelve of those countries are either NATO members or NATO partners here in the Pacific. NATO is feeling its oats, so to speak. The tragic decision of the Russian government to attack Ukraine has given all the rationale that NATO and the U.S. needs to continue to bump up their military budgets that we were hoping were going to be going down. But now that there's been this attack on Ukraine, then the governments are saying we have to increase the military expenditures and it doesn't matter what happens to health, education, housing and the actual human security that is so important for every citizen of the world. And that was Anne Wright. Wright, who lives in Hawaii, also spoke with WBAI about a report by the United States Navy that was released Thursday, revealing that shoddy management and human error caused fuel to leak into Pearl Harbor's tap water last year, poisoning thousands of people and forcing military families to evacu evacuate their homes for hotels. The investigation is the first detailed account of how jet fuel from the Red Hill, Buell, uh, pardon me, Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility, a massive World War II era military 
military-run tank farm in the hills above Pearl Harbor leaked into a well that supplied water to housing and offices in and around the sprawling base. Some 6,000 people suffered nausea, headaches, rashes, and other symptoms. Wright had this to say. Last Thursday on uh, June 30th, the Navy finally released a report that actually had been written in January, and they'd been holding it for almost five months before they released it with a small addendum to it, which identified that the Navy complex had been negligent in the maintenance and repair and supervision of the massive 100 million gallon underground jet fuel storage area in this place called Red Hill, which is about three miles above Pearl Harbor and Hickam Air Force Base. In May of this last year of 2021, there was a release of jet fuel, which the Navy first said was only about 1,800 gallons, but turned out to be more like 27,000 gallons of jet fuel that disappeared. They didn't know quite where it went. And in fact, they didn't really tell everybody in the chain of command that there had been such a massive loss of fuel. And it wasn't until November of 2021 when an electric cart hit a pipe that had some of this fuel in it. And the fuel then discharged down into the drinking water well. Uh, which services over 100,000 people, many of them, or most of them, military families. This report, which was done in January, is scathing about the command and control, the lack of supervision, the lack of emergency containment processes, and they have also added to this report the fact that it will take over two years to finally get the 100 million gallons of fuel out of these 18 tanks that now currently have the fuel. Interestingly enough, when the whole complex was constructed back in the early part of World War II, it was a massive engineering process of digging back into an old canic rock to put 20-story tanks in there to, to hold fuel. It took them three years to build it. Now they're saying it's going to take them two years to just get the fuel out of it because of the poor state of condition of the three miles of piping system and the tanks themselves. And so we as a concerned community of Honolulu, which is wondering whether or not this jet fuel plume is going to continue to go through the aquifer system and perhaps contaminate the whole aquifer of the island of Oahu, waiting two years for the Navy to slowly start getting this stuff out of those tanks is way too long. There are other ways they can do it besides spending a billion dollars to repair a facility, which will then no longer be used. They can hire lots of fuel tankers that can take the fuel out by road to the various above-ground tank farm systems that there are on the southern shores of Oahu who have capacity to take that. They were saying this is a national security treasure. Everything is fine. They have to have those underground tanks for our national security. And yet, during this whole time, they had never maintained them properly. So we now have an encampment out at the gate of the commander of the Pacific Naval Fleet, its headquarters now has a big tent in front of it, and we have daily programming about the need to get that fuel out of those tanks now rather than two years from now. And that is a former 
United States Army officer Ann Wright, who works with the peace movement based in Honolulu, Hawaii. After months of resistance, the military in April agreed to order to an order from the state of Hawaii to drain the tanks and close the Red Hill facility. A separate report the Defense Department provided to the State Department of Health on Thursday said December 2024 was the earliest they could defuel the tanks safely. And... In more international news, representatives of Ecuador's government and indigenous leaders signed an agreement in Quito on Thursday to cut the fuel prices, to cut fuel prices and end so-called cost of living protests that had taken place across the country for 18 days. Footage features Minister of Government Francisco Jimenez and the president of the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador, Leonidas Iza, participating in a meeting discussing the agreement and later signing it. El único ganador debe ser el Ecuador. Estas jornadas de junio han sido sin duda una lección para todos. Y cada quien In translation, the first speaker said, "Today there are no individual winners or losers. Today the only winner must be Ecuador." These days of June have undoubtedly been a lesson for everyone, and everyone should be able to draw their conclusions. That's Jimenez. In his turn, Isa stated that it is necessary to understand a double benefit, one for all of the Ecuadorian society, but also one for those of us who are really fighting. According to the agreement, gasoline prices will decrease from $2.55 to $2.40 per gallon, while diesel prices will also decline the same amount from $1.90 to $1.75 per gallon. And thousands of people set off on foot from southern Mexico early Friday morning, undeterred in their efforts to reach the United States, even after the deaths of at least 53 migrants in Texas this week highlighted the dangers facing many migrants. The group, mostly of young men from Central America, Venezuela, and Cuba, included families walking with children and babies in strollers. A migrant with a caravan named Luis explains why he's risking the journey to the United States border. Venezuela está dura, la situación país está dura, no se puede prácticamente vivir ni dar un futuro a sus hijos. And uh, that was Luis, and what he said was. Um, well, I'll let you. I don't have the translation here. I think you get the idea. I think what he was saying was uh, that uh, they have to risk it. They don't have any choice. They have to get to the American border. Life is impossible for the poor in Venezuela. If you want your children to do better, you must come to the United States. The migrant caravan began in the city of Tapachula near the Mexico-Guatemala border, following two other organized earlier this month with large contingents of Venezuelans. Both caravans disbanded in nearby towns. Asked about the Monday deaths of migrants in an overheated tractor trailer in Texas, people in the caravan expressed sympathy, with some saying they were walking to avoid the same danger. And closer to home, a rally to free black political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal was held in Newark, New Jersey, and 46 other cities earlier today. The Newark rally was sponsored by the People's Organization for Progress, Love Not Fear, the Campaign to Bring Mumia Home, Prisoner Solidarity Committee of Workers World Party, and Mobilization for Mumia. Larry Hamm is spokesperson for the People's Organization for Progress. Organization for Progress, we had a rally to free Mumia Abu-Jamal in Newark, New Jersey today to join with people in 40 other cities 
who are calling for Mamiya's freedom, for him to be released from prison so that he doesn't die in prison. Because it seems like they have given him de facto death sentence by not adequately treating the illnesses he has. There's a possibility that he could die in prison. In Newark, New Jersey, activists from around the area came, various organizations, and it was a good rally. What kind of health problems? He had heart surgery. He had to overcome hepatitis C. He's suffering from various other diseases related to that. He has a skin disease that still plagues him. The court said that the prison is supposed to give him adequate medical coverage and what he needs to recover. They give him enough to say they've done something, but they really don't give him all the medical attention he needs in order to be healthy. By doing so, they put his life in peril. That's why I said they're trying to give him a de facto death sentence through medical neglect. We're urging people all over to call the governor of Pennsylvania, to call the Department of Corrections, to demand Mumia's release. We're also calling on people to get their local city governments to pass resolutions calling for Mamiya Abu-Jamal's release. In New Jersey, we've had some experience with this as a result of the activism of individuals and organizations. Sundiata Kohli was released, albeit at the age of 85, but he was released. And in the same way that Sundiata was released, we want to see the release of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And that's Larry Ham. He's a spokesperson for People's Organization for Progress. On May 25th, Sundiata Akoli was released from Southwood State Prison in Cumberland County, New Jersey, after being incarcerated for nearly half a century for the 1973 murder of a New Jersey state trooper. Two weeks earlier, in a 3-2 verdict, a New Jersey Supreme Court determined there was no substantial evidence to keep him imprisoned any longer and overturn an appellate division ruling from 2019, which previously prevented his release. And murder was their words. It could be said that there was a shootout on the highway. Mumia is a Philadelphia-based community activist convicted of murder also of a Philadelphia police officer, Daniel Faulkner, also under mysterious circumstances in which it's very possible that evidence was withheld. A activist with the group People's Organization for Progress spoke at the rally and echoed the call to support America's political prisoners. So contribute to, to donate to political prisoners. So revolutionary culture, making sure that the consciousness about political prisoners is instituted into every institution that we're building inside of our communities. All of our people must know the struggle of political prisoners and it must be on their mind daily. You must think about that when you wake up in your bed, that someone's waking up in a cell, that they're going to sleep in a cell, that they might be targeted or harassed by opposition during their day. And that's not to give you any despair. That's to, to, to remind you of the urgency of the situation at which we face it as African and as global colonized people. So revolutionary culture is the second point. The third point is that you must open your arms to political prisoners. And that's what Bob Larry Hamm was just touching on. You must write to political prisoners. You must engage them and build with them sincerely. Open up relationships with them. Go see them if possible. 
We do this work to free us, like prison culture said. And we understand that we love our people. So it's not just an abstract idea of freeing political prisoners or of supporting political prisoners. We can do that work materially and in a concrete way. So write to your brothers and sisters and comrades. And trust me, being sure, I'm sure plenty of us are here, they will write back. They will engage. And that was a spokesperson at the rally in Newark. So, um, and in more national news, furiously watching the Supreme Court dismantle what for almost 50 years was a constitutional right. Democratic operatives and activists have been begging the White House to do everything in its power to ensure people still have access to abortion. Many view President Biden's announcement last week that he supports a carve out to ending the Senate filibuster to codify abortion rights at the federal level, a step in the right direction. But it hardly quieted their anger. The president's statement the other day with a group of governors, including New York State Governor Kathy Hochul. I'm joined by a group of Democratic governors. We work closely to protect women's rights after this tragic reversal of Roe v. Wade. A terrible, extreme decision, in my view, upending lives and impacting on the health and safety of millions of women. And I share the public outrage at this extremist court that's committed to moving America backwards with fewer rights, less autonomy, and politicians invading the most personal decisions that not only women, but we'll find if they expand on this decision, men as well. But Congress is going to have to act to codify the row into federal law. As I said yesterday, the filibuster should not stand in the way of us being able to do that. But right now, we don't have the votes in the Senate to change the filibuster at the moment. That means we need two more votes now when we vote probably after November. More senators and House majority and the House majority elected in November to get this bill to my desk. So the choice is clear. We either elect federal senators and representatives who will codify Roe or Republicans who will elect the House and Senate who will try to ban abortions nationwide. Nationwide. This is going to go one way or the other after November. So let's remember the reasoning of this decision has an impact much beyond Roe and to the right to privacy more generally. This is you know, chaos, it's frightening, but also we're doing what we can to make sure that you know, we are protected. Well, what's happening now? The rights of millions of women across this country are now falling on the shoulders of just a handful of states. Just a handful of states are now gonna have to take care of the health care of women from other states. So we believe, as you do, Mr. President, that what's available to New Yorkers and the other enlightened states should be available to all Americans and no one should have to travel. And that's why, as you agree with us, Congress has to act. For now, at least, where you live will determine your rights. So for now, it's up to the states to determine whether can, women can get reproductive health care. And in North Carolina, they still can. And I'm determined to keep it that way. And that was this, uh, President Biden's address on the issue of abortion to the governors of those states that have uh, said, claim they will guarantee the right to get an abortion continues, at least in their localities. And emails and phone calls from same-sex couples worried about their legal statuses 
the legal status of their marriages and keeping their children has flooded attorneys who are uh, because of the fear that uh, the elimination of the right, the constitutional right to abortion could uh, lead to the elimination of the right to gay marriage, overturning a nearly 50 year old precedent. The Supreme Court ruled in Mississippi that in a Mississippi case that abortion wasn't protected by the Constitution. And that's likely to lead the bans in about half the states. Justice Samuel Alito said the ruling involved only the medical procedure, writing nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But conservative Justice Clarence Thomas called on his colleagues to reconsider cases that allowed same-sex marriage, gay sex, and contraception. Here, some uh, gay folks meeting with a lawyer had this to say in a discussion of their fears. People who are married and who are gay are now looking to reinforce their marital um, situation with their spouses and the privileges that go along with marriage. Um, and they are trying to uh, shore up their rights by wills and uh, powers of attorney and um, advanced health care directives and things that would provide outside of a marital situation rights that married people would typically have. We've received dozens of inquiries on what people need to do to reinforce their marriage or to protect their marriage or at least the legal parameters of their marriage, even if their marriage were to somehow be undermined or rescinded. They want to keep in the protections of that marriage. Okay. Indications from right-leaning politicians and indications from Clarence Thomas himself and his uh, supporting opinion puts them in, in, in the target of, of what's to come next. And that was Sydney Duncan. She's a lawyer uh, in the city of Birmingham, Alabama. The prospect alarmed some LGBTQ couples who worry about a return to a time when they lacked equal rights to married heterosexual couples under the law. Many fearful that their marital status is in danger are moving now to square away potential medical, parental, and estate issues. And that's the end. And that's some of the news for Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Uh, 